Genesis 29, and we're just going to go through 29, starting in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep laying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, it is, is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a, uh, a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you now therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one. We will give you the other also in return for, for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction for now, my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we know, like, as we come together, we have so many different things going on in our lives. We have just the reality of, of, of this, 
sinful and cursed earth and then our sin as well. Um, so God, would you show up in your word? Would you do the surgery on our hearts with your word today, this morning, God, so that we may walk out of here refreshed, so that we may walk out of here knowing full well what it is you have for us for the rest of the week. Would you build us up and encourage us in the gospel? And ultimately, God, just help us to devote all of our lives, all of our self, all we have back to you. We thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, perhaps one of the Either the depending on who you talk to, it's either the best or the worst movie of all time. Um, kind of talks a little bit about what happens here in uh, in this story. In that, what we see is just a a bunch of idolaters. A bunch of idolatry is happening in our passage. Um, and so, what we're going to see in this movie from this scene is just one guy who definitely has an idol. Let's watch. Back in '82. I used to be able to throw a pigskin a quarter mile. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. Watch this. Ah! What the heck are you doing? That's what I'm talking about. I better go. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? Yeah. If coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. You better believe things would have been different. I'd have gone pro. In a heartbeat. I'd be making millions of dollars and living in a big old mansion somewhere. You know, soaking it up a hot tub with my soul in me. Kill. I reckon you know a lot about cyberspace. You, you ever come across anything like time travel? Easy. I've already looked into it for myself. Right on. Uh, I just noticed, too, he says, if Coach would have put me in. So he wasn't even a starter. <laughs> like he's on the bench. If Coach would have just put me in. Um, man, just poor Uncle Rico, though. Like, he just looks so sad. Um, but he, here's, the, here's the, the thing with an idol. Uh, what it starts out at is, man, if I could just blank. Uh, for Uncle Rico, like, man, if I could just go back. Like, if Coach could, like, he wanted to have a time machine. He wanted to time travel. Um, and so this line of thinking actually plagues us all, if we're honest. Um, maybe we don't say it, but I know that we all think it. Uh, if I could just blank. For instance, if I, could just, if I could just go back to school and like actually focus on school and have gotten good grades, um, if I could just go back and not date that person, if I could just go back and not watch Napoleon Dynamite, um, <laughs> Or, or even in the future, if I could uh, just get that job, if I could have that wife or that husband, if I could just get uh, this person to stop doing this thing, if I could just have that house or that vacation, or if I could just eat this meal, what we feel in that moment is a craving that God has placed inside of all of us. 
God has designed you and I with that craving, but it's for the purpose of seeking him in those things. That craving is there for a reason, um, but it's a, there's a joy, there's a happiness, there's a fulfillment, a hope, a resolve, a satisfaction, and all of the things that we crave, we find in God, and we find in living out our lives for his glory and for his purpose. It's all the things that we crave that, that's, that should point us to God. The issue is we feel that craving, and we're going to devote ourselves to things here on earth, things that don't really matter, things that aren't ultimately going to get us there. Things like, we'll crave that food, and then we eat that food, and then it's like, well, I didn't really get it. I still have this longing. We long for satisfaction. We think food's going to get us there. So we eat, and we keep eating, and we keep eating. We long for pleasure, and we think that sex will get us there. So we just keep going deeper and deeper into this thing. We long for joy, and so we think we'll find that in, in that vacation, that job, that person, that kid. But what we find is that when we look for these things here on earth, the thing that we're actually searching for isn't of this earth. What this is called is idolatry. It's putting something in the place of God that should not be there. We see this in our passage with Jacob, um, with his idol of spouse, and we see it with Leah and her idol of children. Um, but in both of them, we see a, a, just a larger overarching truth about our lives in our, in our lives of idolatry, and then at the end, God is just going to tie a ribbon on the top and just show mercy to his people. Um, so the truth of the matter is that you and I, we're going to place our hope in idols. All of us. It's what we do. It's what we, uh, one commentator, he actually says that our hearts, our hearts are idol factories. It's just, they're constantly pumping out idols. Oh, you know what? I feel this craving for this thing. I have this desire deep down. I'm going to make something. Or, man, I bet that thing will get me there. So uh, there is a hope. There is a good news. There is a God, not an idol, that we find all of our true longings and hopes and dreams and desires in. And it's not a thing here on earth. It's not a circumstance. It's not a situation, but a big P person. So in our passage, we're going to see three truths. The first is we do not get away with idolatry. And these are kind of long, so I'll say them again. But we do not get away with idolatry. The second is idols are disillusioning. That's a really long word. Good luck spelling that one. There has to be a better word. Deceiving. Idols are deceiving. Um, so we'll say that one instead. Disillusioning is a long word. Um, and then three, God gives mercy to idolaters. Uh, so we do not get away with idolatry. Idols are deceiving. And God gives mercy to idolaters. The first is we do not get away with idolatry, so there is no secret sin of idolatry. It's not like we can do that in private. Um, the second is idols are deceiving. What we think we're getting when we sinfully chase an idol is completely different than what it actually promises us. Um, and then three, God gives mercy to idol makers. None of us escape the curse um, of sin by devoting ourselves to an idol. Only by devoting ourselves to the one true God do we actually escape. So let's just take a look at the first one. We do not get away with idolatry. Uh, first, just a quick recap of the story, what's going on. Um, Jacob ran away. He fled from his, from his homeland, his country, his family, uh, because he stole his uh, brother's blessing and birthright. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm going to take this as mine. And he got it through deceitful ways. Um, so Esau, his brother, the one he stole it from, he's like, all right, that's cool, but I'm going to kill you. 
Like, once dad dies, I'm going to kill you. Um, so he runs away, and he runs away to his, his mom, Rebecca's uh, homeland, uh, because he's like, I don't know anywhere else. It's like the only family I have left. Let me go here. So he lives there for a while with his uncle Laban, and he's, his, his uncle Laban sees, he's like, man, this guy's a good farmer. Let me go and ask him, like, what, what is it going to take for me to keep you? Like, what, what can I pay you? Um, Jacob, he's fallen for Rachel, and they had that odd kiss thing out in the wilderness. Um, so he just throws it all out there. He's like, I want Rachel. Like, let that be what you pay me with. I'll work for shoot, seven years. I'll, I'll do all of that just for Rachel. Let me marry Rachel. Um, and then if you notice, Laban says, well, better you than anyone else. He doesn't say yes. Key, key in, in that, uh, just the way that he said that. He doesn't say yes. So then after the seven years of serving for Rachel, every night, dreaming of just being married to her, like waking up in the morning, that being his motivation for going to work. So yeah, man, once I finish this time, then I get to marry the girl of my dreams. It's going to be amazing. And all that time is just building up this idolatry in him. Um, and then the wedding feast comes. Everybody gets drunk. Everybody's having a really good time. And then in the morning, it was Leah. Laban knew what he was doing. He didn't give Jacob Rachel, and it was, that was on purpose. He knew that nobody was going to marry Leah, his firstborn, so he deceived himself into this situation. So, but why? Why would no one marry Leah? The text describes her as having weak eyes. It's like her eyes were weak, um, but that doesn't mean that she has bad vision. Otherwise, it would say Leah had bad vision and could only see short, short distances, but Rachel could see far distances. Um, it says Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Um, so we're, under, we're to understand that Leah was weak in appearance, not good-looking. And all in one moment, poor Leah becomes the unloved, the unwanted, the hated so what we have in our story is what we've seen so many times in the book of Genesis already is just a trail of the same sins over and over again. Abraham, he goes down to Egypt and offers up his wife as a, essentially a sacrifice. He's like, no, I, I don't want to be killed. Take my wife. She's actually not even my wife. She's my sister. Um, and then we see Isaac, his son, doing the exact same thing. Where do you think he learned it? <clears throat> and then uh, Isaac when he's, you know, he's got his own sons now, he favors Esau over Jacob. And then Jacob, because of that, favors Rachel over Leah. He's like, yeah, this is just the way it goes. I was unloved in this way, so I'm going to make her the unloved one. Jacob, done the, he did the exact same thing that was done to him and the very thing that left his life in utter hell. He was in the wilderness. So here's the first truth that we see in this passage we do not get away with idolatry. We do not get away with the sin of idolatry. Leah is described in this passage as hated, unloved, unwanted, afflicted, and that all started with Jacob seeing how to treat people in his dad. When we sin, when we have our idols and, and that sin, it's not just one action or one event and then it's over. The Bible says that we create and release a devastating power that just careens around our lives indefinitely. Idolatry gives birth to more idolatry, more sin, and it's not in secret, and it makes lives into utter hell. And here's that paragraph that I warned parents about. Um, in 2002, Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped when she was only 14 years old 
and her kidnapper would force himself on her after watching hours and hours of pornography. He kept her captive and used her in this way for nine months. And in an interview, Elizabeth said, I can't say that he would not have gone out and kidnapped me and done what he did to me if he did not look at pornography. All I know is that pornography made my living hell worse. Sin and idolatry is not done in secret. It makes lives into utter hell. I think that we have a tendency to think that our lives are just our own. And so what we do, what we decide to do with our own time, that doesn't really matter to anybody else. If no one knows about it, then I'm fine. But the guilt and the weight of the sin of idolatry is going to weigh on us, and other people are going to notice, even if they don't notice that they notice. It's easy to see when a man or a woman is burdened and weighed down heavily with guilt and shame of being in sin, of being in idolatry. And it's easy to see when a man or woman is free. There is a love that we do not give our wife or husband if it's given to those online. There is a care that we do not give our child if we've spent the day in anger and selfishness. There is a sacrifice that we do not give to God in our service to him if we are in sin. We do not get away with sin. It is not victimless. It destroys us and those around us. So we should take it very seriously. We should put it to death. This is the first truth that you and I see in our passage. We do not get away with our idolatry. We do not get away with our secret sin. Secret. So then my question is, what sin do you have in secret? Who do you have that you can confess to for the sake of your soul? For the sake of those around you? There is a freedom. Second point, idols are disillusioning or deceiving. We see in Jacob a man who has the idol of a spouse. He's like, man, I see Rachel. If I could just have Rachel as my wife, then my life would be set. There's how you know it's an idolatry. If you say, if I just blah, if I just blank, um, I have to have her. But in the morning, Jacob was deceived by his idol. In the morning, uh, it was Leah. Poor Leah here, honestly. Like, I feel for the girl. She's already called weak in appearance. And then she's the, the disappointment of Jacob's life. Uh, and then, like, can we just say, Jacob is a terrible person. Uh, we've seen nothing good from him so far. Uh, but here's the thing. Leah, it's, it's harsh what, what the Bible describes Leah as, but it's actually symbolic of a deeper human truth that we all need to see, and it's found in verse 25. The, the wedding feast, the wedding had just happened. Uh, everything just happened, but in verse 25. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. In the morning, whatever our idol may be, in the morning it will always be a letdown. That's the truth that we're supposed to see in Leah. In the morning it will always be a disappointment. Leah here is pointed to as the sad truth of idols and sin. No matter what we think about our idol, how beautiful we think the tangible joy is going to be once we get it, when we do finally get it, if we do finally get it, it's not going to be Rachel. It's not going to be that thing that we've built it up to be. It's going to be Leah. 
Again, that sounds harsh, but it's just the truth. It's a symbolic truth of what we see in our own idols. C.S. Lewis, um, in his book, Mere Christianity, he says this. Most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may have been a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. In the morning, it will always be a disappointment. That's the truth of our idols. Idols are deceitful. They make us think that we're getting something, but in reality, they can never back up their promise. We also have an idol maker in Leah as well, um, but she has the idol of children. If you look at verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. You can just hear the pain in her heart, like, this is going to be the thing. He has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. There's her idol. Now my husband will love me because of these kids. Verse 33. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. Maybe now he's going to love me. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. If I just have a kid, like, then I'll be there. My culture says that I... like. A barren woman is just a disgrace, but I'm having all these kids. Now my husband's going to love me. In fact, she even names her kids on the basis of, so the first one means I'm seen, the second one is I'm heard, and the third one is I'm attached. She names her kids what she longs for, what she wants from her husband. But it doesn't work. It never works. Jacob still only has eyes for Rachel. So here's the truth. If we build our life on the idol of spouse, we will be controlling and judgmental. And if anything goes wrong with them or if they react or, or act in a certain way that is wrong, then we're lost. If we build our life on the idol of children, then we will have to live through them or we abuse them because they have to act a certain way. And if anything goes wrong, then we're lost. There are all sorts of things in this world that promise to give us life and joy and fulfillment, but they never do. Idols make us think that we see something, and so we chase after it, only for it to be a mirage or a, a false summit. And we find ourselves exhausted and never fulfilled. We're never there. So then my question is, where do you find yourself most constantly frustrated and angry? Where do you find yourself most exhausted? Pray that God would show you, that he would bring down the veil of, of disillusionment to show you this is an idol. 
the reason why you're exhausted after chasing this is because you're not going to get it there. Idols make terrible gods because they are limited. Idols are deceiving. Idols are disillusioning. But there is a way to fulfillment and joy and rest and relief. And we actually find the answer in the last verse of the chapter. If you read verse 35. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, and she ceased bearing. This is actually point three. God gives mercy to idolaters. Uh, what we should see in Genesis 29 is a chapter full of idolaters and terrible people like Jacob. Like, there are no role models here. There, th- like, there are no, if we look to Genesis 29 and we think, oh, we're, we're going to find our virtues here. We're going to find how to live. That's not going to work. We do not see any... Uh, any sort of role models, it shows us people like Jacob, like Leah, who consistently do not appreciate grace even after they have been saved. But this is a beautiful truth for you and I to see. God does not work with awesome people. God works with weak, cowardly, passive idolaters. If we were awesome, we would have no reason to have a savior. We don't want to be awesome. It's the last verse of this chapter that clues us into the whole truth of the passage. God blessed Jacob and Leah with these three sons, but it's the last one that brings Leah to praise God. And she says, this time I will praise you, God. I will devote myself to no one but you alone, not any other child, not my husband. And you know who the last son is? Judah. The same tribe of Judah that would father Jesus himself. God gave, Leah through, God gave Leah mercy through Jesus Christ. And not only mercy to Leah, but mercy to the world, to all the nations. What happens here? Like something had to have changed. Something changes in Leah. In the Hebrew text, uh, she went from calling God, God in our ESV translation, which is Elohim, to Lord, Yahweh. In that last one, she calls him Yahweh. That's to say she went from having no relationship with God for him just being this generic God, Elohim, that what everybody called God, to Lord, my Savior, my God. She went from no faith, from working her life out with her idols to faith and to a God that she could serve that was not going to disappoint her, that she, could, um, she would feel loved and cared for like she needed to be loved and cared for. She was unloved as a wife but loved as a daughter. Leah, the unloved, the unwanted, the unlovely, God works through the unlovely. God works salvation of the world through this lineage, through this lesser sister. Through Jesus, God loves the unloved, the unwanted, the jacked up, the hated. And verse 31 actually clues us into the gospel so clearly. Just look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, then he opened her womb. Then he shows up. When the Lord saw that she was hated, then he shows up and he steps in to the story. While we were still yet sinners, then Christ died for the ungodly. The unloved. It was not deserved. It's the opposite of deserved. It's mercy. 
So you want to know what brings us from the devotion of idols to devoting ourselves to God in this way is mercy. It's one thing that those idols can never give us. It is a mercy. And the truth of the passage is that we find all the mercy in the universe in this Judah, this Jesus Christ. The truth of the matter is that we can put aside our idols that deceive us. We can stop the striving and chasing for vain idols, and we can turn to Jesus in belief and say, this time I will praise you, Lord. I devote myself to you and you alone. I have so much in my life uh, that I do not have and that I'm always going to desire, but I give this life to you, Yahweh, my Father, my Savior, my God. The destruction that idolatry brings, the trap of the illusion and what our idols are for us, the, the disappointment that we find when we actually think we have it, there is only one way out of all of this. And it's devoting ourselves to the mercy of God, to us sinful idolaters in Jesus Christ. And so we see the answer to the problem of idolatry. It's in what we devote ourselves to. It's in what we praise. It's in what we hold on to for dear life. Joshua um, and all of Israel, that, like you may know the story, they march around Jericho for seven days. This is when uh, Joshua's going into the promised land and he's just kicking everybody out. He's like, nope, this is our land. Um, so he goes into Jericho, this huge fortified city, and they walk around it, march around it for seven days, and then God just destroys the walls from the inside out. Um, but then, so, I mean, they're going around the city and celebrating and yelling and going crazy, but God gave them commands before. And he says, here's what you can plunder and here's what you cannot plunder. All of these things over here, destroy them. Like, they are not good. Get rid of them. <clears throat> One man didn't care. He wanted to keep some of the gold and the silver for himself. It was actually uh, idols. Um, but this action, since no one knew, but God knew, and we do not get away with idolatry, it kept Israel from winning the next war. They go into battle and they get defeated handily, easy. So Joshua, he just, he goes to God and he's like, what are you doing? Like, we won all these wars and then now this thing, and so God backs Joshua up and he's like, well, and then here's what he says to him in Joshua. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things, read idols, they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. The beautiful picture there is that uh, if what we devote ourselves to can be destroyed, then so will we. Keeps going. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things, the idols from among you. Get up consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things, idols in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. God's people had devoted themselves to this idol and this devotion led to destruction. This is what we see in our passage. It led to these lives of utter hell. But then we also see at the very end a proper devotion and thus an answer to the problem of idolatry. Joshua, uh, he, and he keeps going, he goes to the man who stole what he was not supposed to steal. 
um, this idol, and he says, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Do you see the answer? The answer to the problem of our idolatry and our sin is found in what we give our praise to and what we are devoting our lives to and what we have our, our, our just full and complete devotion to. We are either devoting ourselves to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ or we are devoting ourselves to a lesser God, one that cannot fulfill any of the promises it makes. The lesser gods, the idols, will be destroyed, and they're going to destroy us. Because once we lose that idol, there goes everything we were searching for. If we devote ourselves to the idol of our kids, and our kids mess up, our idol was destroyed, and so are we. If we devote ourselves to the idol of our spouse, and our spouse messes up, our idol is destroyed, and so are we. On and on and on that story goes. So my question to you is, what are you devoted to? What are you devoted to? We actually see um, the response to the gospel of, of God showing up to Leah in verse 31. We see the response in that last verse, this time I will praise the Lord. You and I, while you and I are still alive, while we do have the chance to do so, while we are still breathing in this mercy from God, let us turn from our idols together. We've all got them. Everybody in this room, let's turn together and say, this time, I will praise the Lord. How do we do it? We believe in the gospel. And we devote ourselves to the mercy of God. We praise Jesus Christ in this life of disappointments and failures because we have everything in him. This time I will praise the Lord. Let's cast everything onto this hope. So we're going to uh, take communion together just to celebrate that because we're going to be proclaiming with our lives exactly this truth. This time, this morning, today, I will praise the Lord. If you're a believer and a follower of Jesus and you have already been made part of this family, then you're welcome to the table as part of the family. However, if you're an unbeliever or if you are in unrepentant sin, I ask that you would remain in your seat. First Corinthians says, you would eat and drink in an unworthy manner. If you're an unbeliever in this room today and you are stuck, You've been in this rut of these idols. Maybe you've gotten there a few times and you're like, man, I see how that doesn't fulfill me. Or maybe you think that it's still there. That is heavy. There is a freedom waiting for you. Left to yourself, you're going to be nothing but an idol-making, disappointed, sinful human. But by mercy, through Christ Jesus, there is a hope. There's fulfillment. There is a joy devote yourself to the mercy of Jesus Christ alone. And if you're in unrepentant sin, remember the truth of the gospel again today. Turn from your idols again today. Devote yourself to the mercy of God again today. For all of us, here is our prayer.
Father, I admit and confess that I am an idolater. I put things in your place all the time and I use sinful means to try and get them. Would you, by your grace and mercy to me in Jesus, bring me to devotion of you instead?